Uh, Why don't we rise to our feet and we will go to the Lord. We will humble our hearts before the Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 41. We'll look at 13 verses today. A message is called the comfort of our creator. And so, Father, to that end, we just thank you that you are in control. Uh, Lord, we just want to pray that you would take our hearts collectively captive, that you would give us uh, Lord, uh, minds that are stayed on you and on your word. You have told us to occupy till you return so that we would be about our master's business. Uh, Lord, that we would be taking in your word, that we would be salt, that we would be light, that you would take and transform our lives even today. And we thank you for doing that. And as always, Lord, we pray that not only having ears to hear you, we would have, uh, Lord, just the, the unction to respond appropriately to you. So have your way here today and we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, ladies and gentlemen. Isaiah 41 is all about the comfort of our Creator. If we take a moment to sort of zoom out, we remind ourselves that Isaiah, in this section of Scripture, is actually speaking to future generations of God's people. The Babylonians are going to come and destroy their temple. They're going to carry them off into exile, and the nation of Judah will languish there in Babylon for some 70 years, but it hasn't happened yet. In fact, it would be another 100 years or so before it took place. Yet God in his mercy is doling out promises of restoration and rejuvenation before the problems ever took place. It's just one of the many ways that God comforts us by letting us know that rough times await us. They will come into the equation of our lives, but he's well aware of it. He hasn't been caught off guard by it and has plans and promises for our peace even in the very midst of it. God gives us promises prior to our problems, and I, for one, am so glad that he does. Because how many of you can testify that when the problems are raining down, it can be so easy to begin to think that perhaps God has lost sight of you. Maybe he just doesn't care about you. But perish the thought, God loves you. And he gives certain assurances, that is promises to you before the problems ever even present themselves. And so let's take and turn our attention to the very first verse of the 41st chapter of the book of Isaiah. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength, and let them come near, and then let them speak, and let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in his righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? And who gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Well, I want to dive right in here. Get this piece of information into your hands so that we can move along unencumbered by curiosity. Because there's a little bit of speculation regarding who exactly is 
God referencing in this passage when he speaks of raising one up from the east, being called in righteousness to his feet, the one to whom he gave the nations and made rule over kings. And some say that this is actually a reference to Abraham. And certainly all of this is applicable to Abraham. And the reason some say this is because we'll see, we'll take note in our passage that God speaks of former things and latter things. And he calls them kind of like bookends, things that have happened historically, things that are yet to happen prophetically, obviously implying that he's over all things that squeeze in between. And if he is the one who is over the affairs of human history from the first to the last, then it's him exclusively who has the right to judge humanity. And so they see the fact of God raising up Abraham and giving him tremendous favor as one of the bookends that are in view here of the former things. Others point to a particular king. His name is Cyrus. And honestly, these truths could apply equally to him. And we will note in our present passage that God will actually call Abraham by name. And he certainly alludes to Cyrus later in this chapter if he's not right here. And in a few chapters from now, he will call Cyrus by name. Now, the interesting thing about calling Cyrus by name is that he does it about 150 years before Cyrus is even born. Now, all of that to say that some see Abraham as one bookend regarding the former things historically, Cyrus the other bookend regarding future things that are yet to happen prophetically. Others say, no, 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 this is all speaking of Cyrus, whom God raised up to free the Jews from Babylonian captivity, uh, that they might return and rebuild their temple, their city. And I'm just going to be honest, for some of you, this may be like, you know, this has, you have zero interest in any of this information whatsoever. Others of you may find it kind of fascinating, want to take the time to do a sort of a forensic deep dive of your own, draw your own conclusion later, but I just want to put these options out there for you. Now, there are a couple of other options that people wonder about, but these are the primary two, and I want to get them on the table for you so that you can have a little intelligence to work with when you're considering the passage. However... Truth be told, since God doesn't say specifically, we are left at least a little bit to our own conjecture. Now, both perspectives are wonderful, accurate applications, interpretations of this passage. And I'm just going to encourage you with this. Neither perspective has any bearing whatsoever on your salvation. And so I'm okay whichever way you want to lean. But what I want you to pick up on out of this passage is who it is who is commanding the courtroom. Did you notice when the curtain drew back in the very first verse of this 41st chapter that we were set, as it were, on the scene of a courtroom? And who is it that calls the nations, the peoples, the tribes, and tongues of the world? They're referenced as the coastlands here. We might understand it, the far reaches of the earth. Who is it that calls the far reaches of the earth into account, into, well, the word is judgment? Who is in control here? It's not the foreign gods, uh, the idols of the nations. That's the context we're working with as we come out of the previous chapter. What we see here is the living God, the King of Jacob, 
the true God and the only God with whom we have to do commanding the court. Amen. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, the day is coming when all the world will stand before the sovereign God, the creator of heaven and earth, and be judged according to their works. Now, as for me, I have no desire whatsoever to be judged according to my works. Uh, I prefer to be judged or put my trust in Jesus Christ, his work on my behalf, and I would encourage you to do the same. Uh, Judgment is coming, but grace is available. And now is the time to turn to Jesus Christ. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't reject him, believe upon him, accept him, and be saved. Amen? Amen. And this is the urgency of the gospel. Because we simply have no guarantee when that day will come. Or for that matter, we have no guarantee of when our day will come. Are you tracking with me? Family, I could have a heart attack Today, you could leave here and be in a fatal car crash in, in within the hour and use it. Well, now that hour, you're trying to use scare tactics. No. Family, this is just the truth. But people tend to think that they have time. And I'm just telling you that mentality will serve as a snare to many. Jesus said that like this. He said, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare to all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore, be vigilant, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Family, you want to catch the first train out. You want to hear the the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, come up here. You want to catch air and be standing before the Lord there in the clouds. Look back at verse 1. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us, underline it, come near together for judgment. What a solemn moment. God calls the nations to keep silence as they come together before him for judgment. Think of when you're in a courtroom. Okay. (laughs) Quick time for transparency. How many of you have been in a courtroom? (laughs) All right. Come on, somebody. My hand's high. And people may be sort of chatting away. There they are. But when the judge enters the room and you hear those words, all rise, there is a hush. There is a respectful silence that ensues. Now, if that be true in a human court, how much more in the courtroom of the living God? And let the people renew their strength. Can I just tell you that if you're going to contest with God, you better be prepared. 
Now, having just come out of verse 31 of chapter 40, we learn that the people of God have limitless strength to draw from as they wait upon the Lord. You know, your strength in Christ is renewed day by day as you serve Him, as you wait upon Him, as you serve others and wait on others. Remember, Jesus said, what you do unto the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. In other words, family, when you serve the body of Christ, here you are today, you're brothers and sisters in the Lord, when you begin to serve them, to encourage them, to pray for them, whatever the case may be, Jesus takes that personally. And as you wait on them, he considers it service to him. How many, look, I want to get in on some of that. And so day by day, he will renew and refresh and recharge you. Though, come on somebody, though our outward man may be perishing day by day, Our inner man is being renewed. But if you don't know the Lord, you really don't have a source to draw from. And so when he says here, let the people renew their strength, it's like we almost pick up on a sense of irony. He's saying, do what you can do to stand before me. He says, listen, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a platform to speak. It almost has overtones of that passage there in Job. You know what I'm talking about? When Job had some questions for God, and God got to the point where he said, hey, you know what? You've had your questions for me. Listen, Job, I got a few questions for you. And so prepare yourself like a man and answer me. Remember that? Those aren't words you really want to hear. (laughs) Be that as it may, he says here, look, I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to give you a platform. You're going to be able to speak. Gather your thoughts, come before me, prepare to justify your idolatry, the fact that you worship some other God, justify the fact that you don't seek me, that you don't serve me, you get the idea. And in verses 2 through 4, God begins reasoning. He's asking questions. Who is it who has true authority over the affairs of humanity? Are those idols the ones who author the events of human history? Are they the ones who have called generations from the beginning? Now, I don't want you to be confused here. I don't want you to tune out because it seems as though we're speaking of something maybe that really doesn't touch where you're at today. Listen, the interpretation of this passage certainly belongs to Israel, but the application is as relevant today as it was the day that Isaiah wrote it. Because here's where this ride is ultimately driving. Is there a point, a direction to, or a course set for human history? I mean, is it driving anywhere specifically? Is there meaning to it? Some kind of objective end? Or is it just some random, completely meaningless, haphazard combination of undirected chance events? Is there a God in heaven who directs the course of human events, always moving us toward a final resolution, a once-for-all fulfillment, or... Is humanity simply upon, fated to be, on an endless rinse and repeat cycle of random happenings? It's an important question because our answer will impact 
influence practically every nuance, if not every nuance, of our lives. How many of you understand that what you believe determines how you're going to behave? Okay. Now look at verse 4. Who has performed and done it, right? He's talking about being over, ordering the course of, of human affairs, human history. Who has performed and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am He. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have here is God declaring from heaven, you are not here by random chance. Humanity is not ill-fated to rinse, repeat, ad infinitum, and we'll see what becomes of it. He says, I've called out generations from the beginning. In the book of Acts, Paul the Apostle put it this way. He said, He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. Look at this. And has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Why? Why were you born? Has this question ever crossed your mind? Why were you born when you were born and where you were born? You ever think about that? Here's why. So that you should seek the Lord in hope that you might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. That is the love of God for you. He loves you. God loves you so much that he has placed you in the time in the place of human history, most advantageous for you to seek after him, to believe upon him, and be saved by him. Isn't that amazing? That God has called out the generations from the beginning. It's not random. It's very orderly. It's very intentional. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. He's the one who lifts up kings, puts down nations. He is the first. He is the last. He is the bookends before and after the epic saga of human history. He has facilitated the whole story from beginning to end and everything in between. Your life is not given over to blind fate or to random chance with no real resolution. God loves you. And he sent Christ to rescue you from the penalty of your sin. Jesus came, somebody give God praise, to seek and to save the lost. Amen. And we're here today that we might hear from him, that we might perhaps even be saved by him or grow closer to him being made, amen, more like him. Little side observation for you in verse 4, then we'll move on. God takes the title, did you see it? I hope you underlined it, the first and the last. The beginning and the end, if you will. Do you remember the book of Revelation chapter 1? 
when John saw Jesus glorified in heaven, and there he was, our Lord, his head, his hair, white like wool, as white as snow, John says, his, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters, just powerful, overwhelming, so strong. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. And understandably so. What an awesome sight. But we read that Jesus laid his right hand upon John and he said to John do not be afraid don't miss this I am the first and the last that's in chapter one of the book in the last chapter of the book Jesus says this I am the alpha and omega the beginning and the end the first and the last. Now, I don't mean to confuse you here, but if God says that He's the first and the last, and Jesus says that He's the first and the last, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there can only be one first, and there can only be one last. So, how do we reconcile this riddle? Come on now, Jesus must be God. Verse 5, the coastlands saw it, the ends of the earth saw it. They see God in authority coming down, you see, in the courtroom as it were, and feared the ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. Everyone helped his brother and said to his brother, be of good courage. And so the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, It is ready for the soldering. And then he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. Are you following the flow here? Isaiah says that when the nations were confronted by the God of all power, all authority, sovereignty, they feared. Hey, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. He says, everyone helped his neighbor, said to his brother, be of good courage. So far, so good. But it's how they encouraged one another, the direction in which they strengthened one another, that sort of shocks us. I mean, we're almost left stunned as we read it. The craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, let's turn from these worthless idols and turn to the living God and be saved. Is that what your Bible says? No. They doubled down on their idolatry. Rather than their fear being allowed to humble them that they might surrender before God, they turned away from God with all the more tenacity, resolve, 
and determination. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to see and understand what it is that we, as humanity, received, inherited in Adam. It was not a desire to be with God. It was an urge or a compulsion to run away from God. Recall the scene in your mind's eye. What happened after Adam partook of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he run to God in repentance, confessing his sin, begging for forgiveness? Is that what happened? No, not at all. He ran from God. He tried to hide from God in all of his sinful shame. Now, it is true that in the heart of every individual, every person, every man, in all of mankind, there is what we refer to as a God-shaped void or vacuum. It's always pulling things toward it, uh, trying to be filled, this, this emptiness, some call it, it is a void, it is a vacuum, it is that certain something within the heart of man that is longing to be filled, and we recognize it as a homing device of sorts, something that is seeking to lead us to the Lord, to seek after the Lord, that we might find the Lord, because it is a God-shaped void, and only Christ can fill the void. But family, that's not something that Adam gave you. I want you to write it down and read it later. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. That's something that God gave you. The Bible declares that God has placed eternity into the heart of every man. That is, there is an intrinsic understanding that there must be more than what this life has to offer. That's not there because of Adam. That's there by the love and grace of God. But even still, people will be shown the truth of who God is, what God has done, and reject Him. They will choose to follow the God of their own making, the God of their own imagination. Well, I think God is like this. I think God is like that. And it's idolatry. They serve the God of their own invention. And Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. But look at verse 8. He says, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. The comparison, the contrast. But you, Israel, are my servant. Unlike the God-rejecting, idol-making people of the distant lands, Israel, which Israel means governed by God, is the servant of the Lord. Now, intrinsic within this phrase, servant of the Lord, you are my servant, is a right understanding of role and relationship. 
God is the one who is in control. He is the master, the one who leads, the one who directs, the one who protects, the one who corrects. Israel is the one who serves, follows, and obeys. Now, I want you to notice how God immediately puts in the system of checks and balances. He says, Israel, governed by God, my servant. But lest there be an air of pride, hey, we're not some pagan people of a foreign land. We're governed by God. He adds, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Now, I mentioned it last week, but the name Jacob literally means heel catcher, uh, one who trips up, deceiver. Today we might say charlatan, we might say con man. That's what the name Jacob means. The idea here is that God did not choose them because they were so great. He chose them because He is so great. He will be a beacon, the, the nation of Israel, pardon me, would be a beacon of God's grace to the nations. It's kind of like why God saves you and me. It's not because we're so great. It's because He's so great. So the people will look at you and look at your life and go, Wow, if God can do that for them, then I'm sure He could do it for me. You see, we become testimonies, beacons of the grace of God. In the book of Deuteronomy, we read, The Lord did not set His love on you, talking to Israel, or choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Hey, look, God wasn't drawn to you because you were this fierce, unrivaled nation. You were a speck. You were nothing. Not really even a people at all. But in this, God is glorified. God loves putting himself in these situations, least likely situations, so that when he prevails, he alone gets the glory. In the New Testament, we read it like this. For you see your calling, brethren... That not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't choose Him. He chooses us. Therefore, let him who glories, come on, glory in the Lord. Now he goes back even farther. Who did Jacob and his sons come from? Well, they descended from Abraham, whom God calls my friend. I love that. Abraham was the friend of God. And therefore, his descendants had a special place before God as well. Let me ask you a question. Do right relationships matter? You better believe they do. And I want to encourage you today as well because all the things that were true of Israel here in verses 8 and 9, they're true of you as well in Christ. You are God's servant. And He has chosen you. Again, not because you're so great, but because He's so great. You are a friend of God. Not because of your relationship to Abraham, but because of your relationship to Jesus Christ. You can write it down and read it later. It's John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15. 
Now let's read our last little section here. Fear not, verse 10, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. Mark that, Israel's at war today. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Now, if verse 10 is not underlined in your Bible, highlighted, circled, whatever, make it so. Fear not, for I am with you. Well, this is, this is a twofold statement, isn't it? It's both a command and a promise. The command, fear not. I don't know that I would say categorically, But I would certainly say that generally, things like worry, fear, anxiety, that's this word dismay, are sin. God tells us plainly, fear not, be not dismayed. In the New Testament vernacular, be anxious for nothing, right? But I love the fact that he tells us not only what we're not to do, he tells us why we're not to do it. Why are we not to fear? Why are we to not be anxious, worried, or concerned? He says, for I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So often, we're prone to fear or discouragement, anxiety, when we feel as though we are alone in a certain situation. God says, you're never alone. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And not only am I with you, Come on, somebody say amen. God says, I will help you. That is, I will support you. I will add strength to you. That is, courage or boldness or assurance to you. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. What a precious litany of promises from the word of God. If God is for us, yes, Romans 8 and 31, then who can be against us? Worry, fear, anxiety, these things lay hold of us. They get a grip on us when we forget how powerful, how great, and how glorious our God is. Who's closing for me today? You just make your way right on up here, Karen. And I want you to follow the flow here 
in, back in verse 7, he says, you know, idols have to be fastened with pegs. You have to help them so they won't fall. You have to hold them up. But God says, listen, I will help you. I'll hold you up with my righteous right hand. This is the comfort of our Creator. And I, I hope, I, I pray that now you maybe can begin to see the terrible nature of our fear and unbelief. Because those things essentially say to God, I don't believe that you are with me. I'm not sure that you are almighty. I'm not convinced that you do truly love me. But as the old hymn goes, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know who holds the future. You know, as we like to say, I may not know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. No need to fear. I've read the end of the book. And guys, we're going to pick up on these thoughts next time, but for now I just want to leave you with the assurance of God's love, His help, His healing, His hope. He is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will uphold you in times of trouble. He will strengthen you and uphold you with His righteous right hand. Can you trust God for that? Then let's humble our hearts before Him. God, we thank You that You are the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulation. And we honor You today. And we thank You for the precious promises of Your Word that you are with us, that you will never leave nor forsake us, and that you will strengthen us, that you will help us, that we can come boldly before your throne of grace to find help in time of need. And God, for reasons that lie within yourself, you have chosen us, and we are your servants. And we thank you for calling us your friends, your children. And so we humble our hearts before you and we give you praise. And family, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, here's the thing. God resists the proud. That is, he sets himself against the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And the precious promise of His Word is that it is by grace 
that we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. From the Alpha to the Omega. From the beginning to the end. To God alone be the glory. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Maybe that's a word for someone here today. Maybe you've come here today. Maybe someone invited you. Maybe you just found us online. Or I mean, who knows what sort of circumstance has led to you being here today. Ultimately, God calls out generations from the beginning. You're here that you might seek Him, grope for Him, find Him, be saved by Him. And so if that's resonating in you and you need the hope of salvation to be real in your heart and in your life, I want to pray for you. And so I don't care how young or how old you are, where you've been or what you've done, is Christ knocking on the door of your heart? That's the first thing. If He is, as I mentioned earlier, don't harden your heart. But open your heart. That's the second thing. And believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Is that you? If so, I'd love to pray for you. I'm just going to ask you to show me who you are. You can raise your hand. If I see it, I'll say so. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you a a second to say, you know what, man? I think this moment's for me. Well, then humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Let Him lift you up. Let Him grab hold of you with His righteous right hand. God bless you. And put your hand down. Anybody else? Today is a day for you. Father God, we're so grateful. Just for your love and your mercy. We're grateful, Lord, that you would reach down, as it were, from the heavens, that you might lay hold of our hearts. Jesus, we're so thankful that you came to seek and to save the lost. And so, Father, I just lift up every heart that's here, Lord. Hearts that are responding, hands that are raising. Because truly, when a hand goes up in my sight, I know that it's a heart that opens up in your sight. And so, Lord God, have your way. Rescue today. Set our feet, Lord, lifting us, as it were, out of the miry clay. And setting us upon the rock. Who is Jesus Christ. The chief cornerstone. Our salvation. We love you. We thank you that you have first loved us. We praise and honor you today. Fill us fresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that our names are in your book of life. May we honor you till we see you face to face. Help us to live our lives out loud for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.